0: Welcome to an exclusive recording of The Shepherd's Path, the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif, rahimahullah, in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Qur'an Revolution. Qur'an Revolution is the game-changing online system designed to give you your Qur'anic voice. No matter where you are in your journey in recitation, Qur'an Revolution is designed to help you recite the Qur'an with confidence. Through its cutting-edge app, personal TA system, and groundbreaking curriculum for English-speaking Muslims, you'll learn more Tajweed in three months than you have in the past six years. The Prophet وسلم, when he came home and he said to his wife, Zamiluna Izamuluni, right, cover me, cover me. What did she say in response to him? Okay. Khadija radiallahu anha, she said to the Prophet وسلم, when he said, um, Lakad ala nafsi," I feared for my life, she said in response, Kalla la Allahu abada. She said, like never. Allah would never humiliate you. And then her reasoning for that. She said, in rahim. She said, because you fulfill your ties of kinship, right? You fulfill your ties of kinship, ضيف, and you are kind to the guests. Right? You fulfill the rights to the guest. That the people who are who have nothing, you take care of them. You're the one who's taking care of those people who have nothing. وَتُعِينُوا عَلَى نَوَائِبُ الْحَقِّ And if there's an issue of truthfulness, you're the one who will be helping in it. So basically, all these things that Khalidah radiallahu anha is saying, these are like in the society, the Prophet is like the highest example in every area of the society taking care of the needy people, the homeless people, taking care of his family members and making sure you know the connections between the family members are fulfilled. If there's issues of justice, the Prophet ﷺ is standing up for those issues of justice. All of those things, what we would call social services, what we would call social services, Khadija ﷺ, in this time of fear, she immediately knew that the Prophet ﷺ, nothing bad would happen to him because of these things. And I actually brought this up in one of my, my khutbahs and I said that if you notice the statement, she said Allah will not humiliate you because you do this. And we might be in a state where there's some humiliation going on. So what are we doing for the society? And as you go through the list, we don't do any of those things. So if I give a speech about cutting off relations, even to good Muslim community, Each one of them has got like an auntie that's cut off an uncle that hasn't spoken to this person for 17 years. Everybody's got that in their families. Believe me, I just started a lecture on that. You see everybody crying because they know it's the truth. And then homeless people, we don't even know what homelessness means. It's like it's not even connected to our communities. And you just go through the list. It's just we're not it's not part of it. So now, when you are asking yourself, how do you bring Istana, the Muslim community back to that majesty that was in the past, you look at these aspects. You look at these aspects. So, a social service project, a social service project based on taking care of or, or helping people fulfill ties of kinship. You know, like start to make it part of our, the things that we talk about again. The homeless people and taking care of the homeless people, the travelers, people who are traveling, does anybody take care of them? There's something interesting But when someone's traveling, where do they go? Where do they go? To a hotel, correct? In the olden days, this is something I learned in recently on this trip, to Mecca, it's really cool. It's like Meccan history, like recent history, like last hundred years. The thing, the question that I asked the brother is a brother who is from Medina, and you know his family's from Medina, and so on and so forth. And I said, I have a question for you. I said, in Hajj time, when people come for Hajj, they have to give their passports to a muallim. How many people have heard that word muallim before? Okay, so a lot of you heard the muallim. To us, he's a passport guy. I'm like, but muallim in Arabic means teacher. So the question I had for the brother, I said, let me ask you this question. In the past did those Saudi um, passport agents used to actually teach the people? Is that where they got the name Mu'allim from? Because they don't teach anybody anymore. I'm just wondering if in the past there was some culture where they were actually teachers. And he said, well, this is, he's like, let me explain to you what happened. He goes, back in the olden days, there was no hotels, right? So if you went to Mecca, you couldn't stay at the Hilton or the Sheraton or, or Ramada or anything like that, or Ibis, (laughs) <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't stay at any of those. So where do you stay when you go to Mecca? Where do you stay? You stay at someone's house. Okay, so you, you, you would have to stay at someone's house. So you would go for hajj, or you would go for umrah, and you would stay at the local people's homes. So you would go to the home... And they would have their sons come to you and they would bring water for you to like wash up. They would bring food to you and they would charge you nothing. And then at the end, because uh, you're the life, you're the guest. And then at the end, kind of like it's maybe just cultural that at the end you'd like say thank you and give them like a tip or something like that. There were these homes surrounding the cabin. and this is what they would do. They would take care of the guests that would come. And anybody that would come, after a while, there were certain homes, they were known that when guests would come, these are the people that would host the guests. Anyhow, times have changed now. If a guest comes in town, nobody cares, nobody knows. They go to a hotel, you know, they eat at a restaurant, and they go home. And this whole issue of taking care of guests, everybody's like, I can't take care of guests. We have work tomorrow. <laughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the guests of Ibrahim alayhi salam in the Quran, and it's actually mentioned more than once. The angels that came to Ibrahim alayhi salam, alayhi, when they entered upon him, Faqalu They said salam and Ibrahim alayhi salam said salam to them and he said. He's like, he doesn't know who they are, and he brought this you know roasted lamb to them. So it's like this huge piece of meat. It's roasted. And how long does it take to roast like a huge lamb like that? (laughs) Two days. At least you know. It takes a very long time. He doesn't even know who they are. But they are his guests. And so he brings like the finest and, you know, the best quality food that he has. And he doesn't even know who they are. They just come to the house. He doesn't know them. It's not like, oh, this is my relative came from so and so. He doesn't know who they are. And he's bringing food for them. Because this is their culture, is to take care of the guests like this. And so how amazing would it be for the Muslim community to take on these qualities? To actually have these qualities of taking care of the guests, standing up, if there's ever an issue of justice. I remember, you know, these issues, you know, brothers are being detained and imprisoned and all of these things, right? So now Muslims are doing like this um, stand up for justice type of of activities. And at those activities, there are non-Muslims there. We're there because it's affecting us. Why are they there? And I'll be in like in the audience, there's like some white girl in the back and stuff like that. Her hair's like purple and red and stuff like that. Why are you at this event? Even though this deals with like Muslim brothers that are being detained. Why is she there? Why do you think she's there? Because she cares about justice. She cares about justice, and I would be like, I wish that would be a quality of the Muslims that they care about justice no matter who it is. So that if this happened to, say, in Canada, you have aboriginals. Do you have aboriginals? Right. So let's say Australia, something like that, something that affects something that it's it's affecting people that doesn't affect you. Would Muslims be at those events? The Prophet would be at that event. Muslims wouldn't be at the event, (laughs) but the Prophet would. That, that was his quality, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And again, she's saying, Allah will never allow you to be disgraced. If you were ever at a lecture and the shaykh says, we are disgraced, or something like that, right? And he's talking about being disgraced. Don't waste time, just boo, you know, boo-hoo, wow, wow. we're being disgraced. Just stand up and do what you're supposed to do. And take on the qualities of your Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa and do what he did, and you will not be disgraced. You will not be disgraced. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There were different stages of the da'wah. There was um, a secret da'wah, which is because it was so hard for them to practice their Islam. They were Muslim but in secret. And then you had da'wah that was public, yet they refrained from fighting. So the, the public da'wah, the, the secret da'wah was about three years in Mecca. After that, you're talking about ten years, which was... Public da'wah, meaning everybody that knew who the Muslims were, and it was public, but they were not fighting back. Muslims were being tortured, Muslims were being killed, but they were not fighting back during that time. The third stage after that, where you had public da'wah, where fighting was instigated. So that happened in Medina. When the Prophet moved to Medina, and they had like an army and so on and so forth, the Battle of Badr, Battle of Uhud, it was public da'wah, and there was uh, fighting involved. But you'll actually see that there were more years where there was no fighting than there were years that there were fighting. Right? So altogether you might see it's like 15 years. 15 years out of 23, there was no fighting. They were being oppressed during that time, but they held back from fighting and then those few battles until the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ just putting together, just giving you some, some background of the Prophet ﷺ's children, He had four daughters, right? The four daughters, the oldest of which was Zainab. Her husband was Abu al-As ibn al-Rabiyah. She was, when the Prophet migrated to um, Medina, she was still with her husband in Mecca. Her husband was, he was one of the prisoners of war. In the Battle of Badr, he fought alongside the Mushrikeen. He became one of the prisoners. The Prophet allowed him, freed him on condition that he would allow Zainab to be sent, and he did allow that. And Zainab anh, came to Medina and joined with her father We have after that Ruqayya. She was married to Utbah ibn Abu Lahab in the beginning. And when the Prophet وسلم, came with the message of Islam, Abu Lahab commanded his son to divorce the Prophet's daughter. So you can see that they were trying to hurt the Prophet any way that they could. And so they would hurt him in his own family. He said وسلم, in a hadith, he said, Fatima minni. He said, Fatima is part of me. And he said, وسلم, Fatima is part of me. Whatever hurts her, hurts me. And this is for all his children And so they were trying to hurt the Prophet وسلم, by hurting his daughters. So um, Ruqayya. Uh, Uthba was married to her, he divorced her and then Uthman radiAllahu ta'ala anhu married Ruqayya This is in Mecca Not only that, he married Ruqayya Uthman radiAllahu anhu was very well known in Mecca and they loved Uthman and mentioned mentions the history of the Khulafat class Uthman radiAllahu anhu Everybody loved Uthman he, There was a statement that they would say that أحبك ka كحب Mecca tali Uthman." That may Allah love you just like the people of Mecca love Uthman. To show you like how much they loved Uthman. Uthman was tortured after he became Muslim. Even though he's from a noble family, and even though they, everybody loves him, he was tortured by his own uncle. And so the Prophet when they, did, um, they migrated to Abyssinia, where they left like the Arabian Peninsula, crossed the water, went to Abyssinia, Uthman was part of that group, and the Prophet daughter Ruqayyah was also there with Uthman. So she migrated So her, his daughter and his son-in-law They went to Abyssinia So they could be safe So these years in Mecca All the struggle that they're going through The Prophet him, Even his daughter He's not seeing his daughter His daughter is away from him Umm Kulthum Passed away um, At the time of the Battle of Badr She was sick at the time of the Battle of Badr And Uthman was with her And when they returned from the Battle of Badr She died like that same time so when she died, Uthman came to the Prophet and he said, I feared that, I fear that you know, my connection to you is going to be cut off. And so he married his other daughter, Umm Kulthum, to Uthman. Umm Kulthum, before, was, she was engaged to Utayba ibn Abi Lahab. So this is the other son of Abu Lahab. And it's not that he like, divorced her. But like, it was like an engagement and there wasn't a consummation of the marriage. They like discontinued from there. So Utayba left her and later on Ruqayya radiallahu anha died. Then Uthman radiallahu anhu came to the Prophet and said this. The Prophet ﷺ married his daughter, Umm Kulthum, to Uthman, second daughter after Ruqayya radiallahu anhu died. They said there is no human being who ever was married to two um, daughters of a prophet except Uthman radiallahu anhu. The fourth of the daughters was Fatima ta'ala anha, the youngest. She was um, in Medina. When she went to Medina, she got married to Ali anhu, who was of the first Muslims ta'ala anhu. Now, Ali anhu, when he became Muslim, was about six years old or seven years old. So he gave his Shahada at seven years old ta'ala anhu. So they were both very young, and they moved to Medina. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them with their sons, Al Hassan, Al Husayn, Sayyida, Shabab, Ahlul Jannah. They also had other children. Of their other children, they had a son uh, by the name of Muhsin. They had a daughter, they named her Umm Kulthum. And they had another daughter that they named Zainab. So it's very sweet, Fatima radiallahu anha, naming her daughters after her sisters. Right? All her sisters died. Right? During the lifetime of the Prophet, وسلم, Fatima عنها, was the only one to um, be alive at the death of the Prophet. And six months after his death, وسلم, Fatima عنها, died as well. So I thought, subhanAllah, you know, that um, you'll say to one of these children, who's your dad? The Messenger of Allah. Who's your mom? Khadija, my mother. <laughs> What a beautiful family. Stages of dawah. The main arguments that the mushrikeen had against the Muslims, the main arguments that they had, the main issues that they were discussing was uh, associating partners with Allah. Associating partners with Allah was the main argument. So, associating partners with Allah, shirk, so they're saying that Allah has power, yes but he also has these idols that, you know, they belong to him. And we're not good enough to pray to God, so we're going to pray to the idols. Which is kind of like a concept you'll see in multiple different religions where the people will belittle themselves and they will pick intercession through either human beings or through created things. So a person who goes to an idol, if you say, do you worship the idol? They're like, no, I'm telling the idol to go talk to God on my behalf. And if you see someone going to a grave, they're like, are you worshiping the person in the grave? They're like, no, I, I love the person in the grave's connection to God, and I'm asking the person in the grave because I'm not that good, right? So it's like a consistent pattern of people taking objects of worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with kind of like this intellectual argument that we're not good enough to raise our hands to Allah and make dua for him, to Him directly. So they're associating partners with Allah. They also disbelieved in the hereafter. They disbelieved in the hereafter. An example of that is... So they they didn't believe that there was resurrection. So they would say that this is our life, and then that's it. These are like their key concepts, right? They're not believing in a a hereafter. It's like we just live our lives, and it's finished. So, for example, Umayyad ibn Khalaf once came in front of the Prophet amongst the people... And he took these bones and he like crushed them. So it was like he had like a dramatization in front of everybody. He crushed the bones and let the dust fall to the ground. And he said, "Yeah, Muhammad, he said, Oh Muhammad, are you saying that God is going to resurrect this bone after it has turned to dust? And the Prophet responded by saying, Yes, Allah will kill you and, and then resurrect you, bring you back to life, and then throw you into hellfire. And of course, then you had after that their main arguments, the refutation of the Prophet ﷺ. The things that they mention, such as that he was crazy, right? He's just lost his mind. And so they had these different arguments. And there was a point where they're like, what of the different issues will we use against the Prophet ﷺ? So they know they're lying. They're just like, let's agree to one lie so it doesn't look like we're confused. So they would sit down like, what are we going to call him? Should we call him crazy? And Anybody who talks to the Prophet knows that he's not crazy. He's the Prophet, and you talk to him, you will know he's not crazy. So they're like, that's not going to work. They're like, let's say he's a magician. Okay, like, why is he a magician? He pulls rabbits out of a hat or something like that. What is he doing that makes you say that he's a magician, right? It's not. That's not even going to work. The, the issue that they said that he's a magician is because... He divides between a husband and a wife. Like, or if someone becomes Muslim, you know, it kind of like abandons family or something like that. And that was an argument that they said against the Prophet, that he's breaking up our our families. A third thing that they would say after that is that he's lying. And again, that they knew before that he was a Sadiqul Amin. Right? He was a truthful one and he was the trustworthy one. They all knew this. And when he came to Medina, an example of this testimony from Abdullah ibn Salaam he said, when the Prophet entered Medina, he said he went to go and see him he said, as soon as I saw his face, I knew that that was not the face of a liar. Liars don't look like that. And so lying, they would know, subhanAllah, that they know he's telling the truth. In fact, the Prophet وسلم, in Medina once said about one of the people in Mecca, that he was going to kill him. One of these crazy chief, like Fir'aun people. I believe it was Umayyah, actually, this Umayyah that we were talking about is the same Umayyah. And Umayyah is saying to the guy who said this, he's like, Someone came from Medina said, I heard the Prophet him, say that he's going to kill you. And he said, Did he say that? And he got so scared because he goes, Because if Muhammad said it, he went home to his wife and he said, Muhammad's going to kill me. I'm dead. And she's like, What happened? He said, Because when he speaks, he never tells a lie. So they know he's a truth, even if he says he's going to kill, he's, he's dead. They know it, that he's the truthful person. He's a truthful person, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They also said against the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa that it was folk tales or fairy tales. So fairy tales, like they'll, they'll say, oh, the Quran is just a bunch of stories. So if I'm telling stories, uh, they'll say, you know, there was this person who used to stand up with the Prophet ﷺ and basically like tell stories while the Prophet ﷺ is reading Qur'an. And every, it's just basically, it's like, you guys have like movie theaters here? What are they called? Cinemas? Okay. So you have like a cinema. If you had a halaqah and you had a cinema and you sent Muslim youth and you'd say go right or go left, which direction would they go? They'd definitely go left. Right? Because that's the allurement of the cinemas. Right? It's just it's stories. So the Prophet ﷺ is like speaking about the Qur'an and so on. And this guy would stand up and he would tell like Arabian Nights. <laughs> right? All these, you know, the Persians and Aladdin and all of this stuff, right? Uh, a thousand and one nights. And he'd tell these stories and then he would say these are just folk tales. You know, stories of the old people. And what Muhammad is telling you is folk tales as well. So Allah subhanahu wa obviously if you know the Qur'an, it's not folk tales, but this is something that they also used and said against the Prophet sallallahu They also said about the Prophet sallallahu companions that they were misguided and feeble-minded. When slaves would become Muslim, they would say, oh look, it's only the stupid people in our community that become Muslim. And obviously, there wasn't just slaves that had become Muslim. You had people like Abu Bakr Uthman, and others. There are people who were like from the aristocrats in Mecca that are still becoming Muslim. But they would use this, they would say that they're feeble-minded and they would just become Muslim like that without, you know, like, oh, he's tricking them. None of these arguments could stand up. Like, If you pick one of the arguments, like, okay, which one is it? Is he a magician? Is he lying? Is he telling folk tales? They're all like contradictory to each other. So, if someone would come from outside of Mecca and the Arabs would then come to him, one person would tell him, Don't listen to Muhammad, he's a magician. It's like, Okay, he's a magician. Then he goes to someone else, Don't listen to Muhammad, he's like a poet. Wait you second, I thought he was a magician. What's going on? <laughs> right? And then someone will say, Oh, he's crazy, but you said he was lying. Lying is intentional. But now you're saying he's crazy. That would mean he's doing it unintentionally. It contradicts each other, right? And so it's just foolishness. They're just making it up because of their disbelief. And so they would sit together. Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira sat with them. Sat with like the chiefs of Mecca. They would sit down and he said, we need to agree on something. Because if they're be like, Hajj is coming up. Everybody's going to come. And everybody's, if we start contradicting ourselves, then people aren't going to listen to us and they're going to become Muslim. It's like, so... You know, first, he told them, like, why don't we just become Muslim? And they're like, what happened to you? Are you crazy? Are you going to become Muslim? And he's like, look, if he's successful, the success will be ours. And if he's not successful, then, you know, that's what we want. We want, you know, to be saved from the situation that we're in. So it was the best option to become Muslim, but they didn't accept that. And so he went through the different arguments, like, okay, look, if you're not going to accept that, uh, not going to accept to become Muslim, then out of all these things... The only thing that holds like, you know, some sort of like something that we can, you know, have something to say about it is, let's just say he's a magician. Because everything else is just easily refuted. Magician because when you listen to what he says, your life will change. <laughs> Which is the message of Islam that your life changes, but they just try like, oh, your life's going to change and so on and so forth. And then they, they went from there. Also against the Muslims, they had different techniques, right? So they would... This is interesting how they say like um, truth when it comes into a society, it goes through three stages. The first stage is community ridicule. The community will ridicule that truth. Secondly, they will physically and actively oppose it. So first, they'll just start making fun of you, but once they start seeing you build up and actually getting followed and people are listening to you, then they will physically oppose it. And then the third stage after that is that the truth is accepted as self-evident. Everybody accepts the truth after that. And anybody who says other than the truth, they're like, you're crazy, this is obviously the truth. So these were the stages. In the beginning, there was the ridicule of the believers. So if someone became Muslim, they would try to ridicule and humiliate that person for becoming Muslim. To give you an example of that. A woman came by the Prophet and she said, look at this foolish person. He's sitting like a slave, and he's and he's eating like a slave. And the Prophet said in response, Wa abdin minni. He said, And which slave worships Allah more than I worship Allah? And you see, there's actually another hadith in which the Prophet said, Innama Verily I'm a slave, I sit like a slave sits, and I eat like a slave eats. But that's just giving you a glimpse of using ridicule to try to hurt the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Another thing that they used to do is to, uh, flip the name of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's Muhammad, and they would call him uh, Muthammam. So they would also, if anybody ever said anything, they would say, Muhammad said such and such. They would say, you mean Muthammam? Muthammam means is like the, uh, the criticized one, right? It's like the opposite of the praised one. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said in one statement, he's like, did you know, see how Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala protected me? He's like they're not even talking about me; they're talking about some person named with them. <laughs> and so the Prophet Sallallahu name even it was extracted. All every time they use a swear word or something like that, they would take his name out of it. Sallallahu There's another technique to, out of their ridicule is every time the Prophet Sallallahu would speak about Islam and so on, they would go to a question as a means of ridiculing the Prophet Sallallahu They would say. So, uh, when's the Day of Judgment? They're like, go ahead, tell us. When's the Day of Judgment coming? And they would use it as mockery, because they're like, oh, you don't know? You don't know when the Day of Judgment? And nobody knows except Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala when the Day of Judgment is. So they would just get to that point, and if the Prophet ﷺ, you know, said, you know, Allah knows, then they would just like, you know, he doesn't know the answer. And they would use it as ridicule. There's a hadith in which it, uh, a Bedouin came to Medina. And said to the Prophet ﷺ, when is the Day of Judgment? That question is a question that the Arabs used to ridicule the Prophet ﷺ with. In Mecca, this Bedouin didn't know that. And it was a question the Prophet ﷺ didn't like for a person to ask. But you see, the Prophet ﷺ didn't get angry at him. This Bedouin didn't know this. He didn't say, you know, he didn't just get angry and, and, and walk away from this person. The Prophet ﷺ said to him in response, he said, what have you prepared for the Day of Judgment? Which was a more important question, because when is the Day of Judgment? It's not really going to um, benefit the person, like a question like that. What's on day such and such. Okay? That's not going to benefit the person. Your Day of Judgment will start when you die. Right? It's called Al-Qiyamah Tu Sohra, which is, you know, like the Day of Judgment, the minor Day of Judgment is when you die. How quickly can you die? How quickly can you die? In a heartbeat, and you're dead. And your day of judgment begins. So when a person says, when is the day of judgment? It's like saying, when am I going to die? How do I know when you're going to die? Even people who try killing themselves, it doesn't work out. They can't even kill themselves. There's nothing in their power. Even if they try killing themselves, they can't kill it unless it's by the will of Allah. So when, what have you prepared for? it? This is of the ridicule. Now after the ridicule stage, then it got to like physical. So they're ridiculing uh, the believers, and they're also torturing the believers So those who were like slaves and didn't have families to defend them They would be tortured Of those people who were tortured was Bilal radiallahu anhu, as we know Bilal radiallahu anhu, slave in Mecca, became Muslim and they tortured him How dare he claim to have a brain, to believe in something So they tortured Bilal radiallahu anhu They tortured Mus'ab ibn umayr radiallahu anhu Mus'ab, and some of these people were from wealthy families. Nobody could torture them because they're from wealthy families. But of the Muslims that were from wealthy families like Uthman, like Mus'ab, there were others like that. Their families came together and said, look, if you hit my child or my nephew, you know, we're not going to allow that. And this other person's not going to allow that. They have defending tribes. They'll say, everybody beat their own children. So they would be tortured under agreement that everybody tortures their own children their own, uh, from this tribe and that tribe. All right, so the question that I said earlier about what were the first things that the Prophet am focused on, what were the first things? These are the first things that he focused on, okay? These are the first things. Number one is correcting aqidah. Correcting aqidah, which is correcting a person's belief set. Correcting the beliefs. So someone will say, for example, we were, we were in the airport, my, my daughter opens up like an umbrella and then the, the security guard at the airport is like, oh, that's bad luck. I'm like, you know, I tell my daughter, like, play with it as much as you want. <laughs> right? The black cat causes it. So correcting beliefs, right? So there's like a first thing. A person will have a set of beliefs. Of the first thing is, these are the belief set of the Muslim. Belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is establishing tawhid of those, of those belief set That power is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The law is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so on. Secondly, these are like the Day of Judgment and Paradise and Hellfire. The Day of Judgment, Paradise and Hellfire. So establishing the Oneness of Allah, which is correcting uh, like a belief set, multiple things. And you know, subhanAllah, even with the belief set, you'd have, for example, you might have like an old auntie in the family, and she might have some superstitions, or they might have like these ta'weez or something like that, or they have amulets, or maybe they have an evil eye thing up on the wall. It depends on what culture you're from, but everybody's got like just a belief set. And so of the first things that you start with is, you know, through the Quran, through the Sunnah, you're explaining to people and correcting their belief set. How does one show love for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Obviously through following the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and so on and so forth. Focusing on the Day of Judgment, focusing on Paradise and Hellfire. These issues of Paradise and Hellfire, I ask you this question, how many times do you hear khutbas that speak about Jannah? where the person is just encouraging you to go to Jannah. Normally, it's just like, oh, this happened in the news, and let's talk about this, and so on and so forth. Sometimes we get lectures about hellfire. We definitely get that, right? So if you're talking about hellfire, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And Day of Judgment, the Quran, in these issues of Jannah and Jahannam, all throughout the Quran, Paradise and Hellfire, um, the issue of Malik Yawm In Surah Al-Fatiha We spoke about you know, the issues in Surah Al-Fatiha All throughout the Qur'an If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is you know, uh, Malik, the owner of the day of judgment the, the day of repayment So the day of repayment The day of qiyamah Should be something that is consistently discussed Especially beginning stages People have their correct beliefs Related to the final day And, and if there's going to be repayment The repayment is either going to be With paradise or hellfire Right? Through either paradise or hellfire, so the people know clearly what is paradise, and know clearly what is hellfire. The Quran also teaches, and this is the message of, of Islam, you'll see that it teaches who the human being is. Who the human being is. When you look at a civilized human being, what makes a human being civilized? And subhanAllah and I, and I noticed this, like when you go to like countries around the world, they'll call it third world countries. And you come to Europe and it's like, it's first world country. Okay? What makes a country first world or third world? Is it like you ha- if you have a Blackberry, you'll be first world? Like a cell phone, mobile phone. Does that because, because you can find these in third world countries. People are walking around, they've got their mobile phones in the desert and stuff like that. does it make a person civilized. So what does make a person civilized? A person becomes civilized through their justice and through their character, yes through their high character and through their justice. That's how a person becomes civilized. That's how you can get a culture that is in the middle of the desert like 2,000 years ago and they are civilized human beings because they stand up for justice. And you can get a culture that can be like on the outset, it looks like a first world country and all that, but inside is corruption, lying, deceit and all of this and they're not civilized. That everybody's just trying to rip the other person apart. And then so civilization, the breaking of law, all of these things gets taken away from the person. So it taught the the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, who was the human being. And now, just so you understand this issue as well, you might think, oh, we know who who, who human beings are, right? You think you know. But just like count a few years back, and you had all the, the, the slave system going on, right? In America, who is the human being? The human being is the one who has white skin. The one who has dark skin is not a human being, right? So the, you know, separation based on color of pigmentation of the skin, right? And so, and so there's still like a misunderstanding of who the human being is. When Islam is in Hajjat al-Wada, the farewell Hajj, and the Prophet ﷺ is telling the people to take care of their women folk, you'll see in Europe at that time they're discussing whether a woman is a human or not. This was the debate. Or is she a piece of property, like a real estate property, that she can be bought and sold? That's what they're debating at the exact same So we look at these, uh, like these hadith and so on and so forth. You don't realize the context of what's going on at that time. And now I'm not telling you to live in the past because times have changed. Right? We're not going to spend and waste all our life saying the Muslims of the past were great. What happened to us? What we need to focus, because definitely scales have flipped. I'm not going to, you know, say that, oh, we're still great and stuff like that, right? Scales have flipped, things have changed. People have understood the benefit of these, of following Islam, not necessarily accepting Islam, but following general outside principles, and they've reaped the benefits of this. And it's for the Muslims to go back and understand these things so that they can immediately start working on it, inshallah ta'ala. Islam also taught them ibadah. Ibadah, train their mind and train their heart. So the Sahaba, عنهم, they're trained in both of these things. And you can't shut off either of them. So someone, for example, might say, oh, doesn't Islam encourage education and we should send our children higher education, so on and so forth. But what if the child doesn't pray to Allah? What's the education going to do for them? In fact, it might become a curse on the Muslims. Right? You have some guy highly educated and he looks Muslim. He's got like a pigmentation issue stuff like that, right? And, and he can say all the Assalamualaikum, alaikum insha'Allah, inshallah. He can say all of that and he goes on TV and he's like, there's nothing wrong with riba. Right? And there's nothing wrong with interest. Even though the Quran says, oh, you know, we're living in different times, blah, blah, blah. Because this person has higher education but has no heart connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Doesn't understand the ibadah part. Of submitting oneself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And on the opposite side A person who is submitting themselves to Allah azza wa Is not closing their mind is, Has not desisted from reading In fact, this is interesting A very interesting point Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran Fas'aloo ahla dhikri That I'm um, asked the people of dhikr if you don't know the, If you look in the Quran and Sunnah The use of the word dhikr Is most often used for dhikr for those who don't normally, it's like it's for um, remembrance. Right? So if someone's saying, SubhanAllah, Alhamdulillah, La la, la, ilaha illallah, this is what you would normally understand dhikr as, correct? Dhikr is most often used in the Quran and Sunnah as uh, talabul ilm, which is the seeking of knowledge. Dhikr is most often used in the Quran and Sunnah as a term for people of knowledge and the seeking of knowledge. So that verse that says, ask the people of dhikr if you don't know, it means if you don't know something, ask the people of knowledge. They are the people of dhikr. They are the people of remembrance. Because that knowledge and remembrance of Allah and worship go hand in hand. It's the same issue connected. Right? There's no separation of that There's an increase of knowledge The more knowledge the person increases True knowledge is increasing in their heart And their ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whenever you see someone quote surah al-iqra And say the first word revealed was iqra Read and it is What's the last verse in that surah What does it talk about It's a sajda right? If you read all of surah al-iqra At the end you would prostrate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's like it starts with read And it ends with prostration Tell that to the person who's giving that speech. It starts with read and ends with prostration. Kalla la Islam came with ad-dururat al-khamsa. Dururat are uh, like these are like the necessities of life. What's that American motto? Love, ha- um, love, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that what it is? Does someone know? What is that statement? Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness Okay, let's check this out With Islam's five darurat What is that statement? Is that just a statement of some uh, American I don't even know the history of America I'm not American anyway (laughs) I'm Canadian (laughs) Yes, the person who said it Who said that statement? Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness Thomas Jefferson? Yes, Thomas Jefferson Okay. Okay So these are the darurat al khamsa. This is what Islam has come for. Number one, hifz al din, to protect the people's religion, to protect the people's beliefs. Hifz al din is um, is to protect people's like even uh, as said, like liberty. What you're talking about in, the, in that liberty um, thing, that is protection of the deen Is like to have the freedom to worship Allah subhanahu wa taala and no human beings. So when the companions of the would come into a country that they're going to conquer, and the person is saying to them, "Why have you come?" The uh, Ribi ibn Amr, this was his statement. He said, "لِنُخْرِجَ الْعِبَادَ مِنْ عِبَادَةِ الْعِبَادِ إلَى عِبَادَةِ رَبِّ الْعِبَادِ." He said to liberate the slaves from enslavement to slaves to the enslavement of the Lord of the slaves. Okay, that was, a, that was a deep translation right there. Okay, so he said, let me explain to you again. He's saying to them that we have come to liberate the human beings, the slaves, right? Because all human beings are slaves from being slaves to other slaves, uh, from being slaves to other slaves, so, and liberate them so that they would only be slaves to the Lord of all slaves. Right? So, you know, for example, I was, I was uh, you know, talking to these non-Muslims in a, in a Western University, and this guy's like, I don't think God needs us to worship him. And I'm like, how did you come to that conclusion? With your dumb brain? <laughs> 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 right? okay, your brain is God, okay? All hail your brain. And then I told, I, if, before I started, I said to the classroom, I said, who else agrees with him? Because if you're going to make your brain your God, then we got, you know, 300 brains right here. We've got 300 idols. How many other idols agree with his idol?" And like two other people raised their hand. I'm like, so therefore your brain is dumb and it's, you know, it's inconsistent because you've given power to the brain. But I said, do you know what Abdullah means? And he's like, um, no, I've never heard that term before. <laughs> and then I said, Abd means slave. Normally they translate it just to make it sound nice as servant. It is not a servant. We are not butlers, <laughs> we're not maids. <laughs> we are slaves of Allah. Right? So in the exact terminology, abd is a slave, but you will always be humiliated until your slavery is only to Allah. That's the only way you'll be liberated. So if someone seeks liberation through other than Allah, they're always going to be a slave. So this person, for example, is a slave to their stomach, is a slave to their desires, is a slave to... You know what? If, if you talk, tell a person you know, who's trying to diet, I can't, I can't stop eating these foods. Because I'm a slave to chocolate cake. Right? Just give an exa- They can't let go because they, they don't have control of these things. Until a person starts fasting. Why aren't you eating your chocolate cake? Because my Lord said not to eat it. That's why you're not eating it. Even though nobody sees you, and you could eat it and stuff like that, when it's between you, and you're not fasting, it's between you and your desires, and you're like, okay, desires take over. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you now have freedom. By taking Allah subhanahu wa taala as being the slave, so actually, that's a trick. I think Shaytan puts upon us that you're like Shaytan's telling you you want to be free, but in order to be free, truly free, you're a slave of Allah subhanahu wa taala. That's the only way. (laughs) That's the only way you can be free. Number two is protecting life, protecting life. So in Islam. The children, it's haram to kill the children. The murder, if someone kills someone, they're killed in retaliation uh, for that murder. It's like a protection. So protection of life. So life, liberty, we found liberty. Number three is protection of lineage, which is not part of Thomas Jefferson's uh, five. Protection of lineage, so so he's saying life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So basically people are like, you know, fornication and adultery and all of this stuff, and people, you know, the whole society is going to to hell because of that. So number three is protection of lineage. So all of these laws related to marriage and uh, divorce and, you know, fornication, adultery, all of this stuff, it's a protection so that the lineage of a person will be protected. Number four, protection of wealth. Protection of wealth, which again is not part of that five. Protection of wealth is like a property. If someone owns something, you don't take it. If so, if you, just because you live in a country doesn't mean you know, someone takes 40% of your wealth in taxes. Under what right did they take that? Right? 40%, 50%, if you're living in the UK, 75% or up. <laughs> and you're working your whole year. They found a way to enslave you one way or the other, right? and. It's funny, in Canada, they're like, Alhamdulillah, we have free health care. And I'm like, who told you it was free? <laughs> who convinced you that the healthcare was free? You pay. You work six months of a year to pay for that health care. Right? A lot. I'm not going to talk about the health issue. You can talk to Obama about that. <laughs> okay, so protection of wealth. So the orphan's wealth, it's haram for people to take it. You have all of these, um, the Prophet said about honest business, Rahim May the mercy of Allah be upon a person, if he sells, he sells easily, if he buys, he buys easily. All of this, you know, and, and the riba, that it being haram, and you know when they say the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, Islam forbids that uh, the rich take advantage of the poor by giving them loans at high interest, you know, like any interest for that matter. Number five is protection of the aql, protection of the brain, of the mind, of intellect. So, drugs and alcohol, they're forbidden in Islam. Why are they forbidden? Because it ruins the people's minds. And it ruins their wealth, by the way, as well. So the alcohol and the intoxicants are forbidden, not allowed to indulge in that. Education being followed, and the encouragement of literacy, and so on and so forth. Even though there's an encouragement of literacy, you'll find a lot of illiteracy amongst Muslim countries and so on. Allah